Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss Southern Rock. Part 1 Music is real, the house is rocking, and the rebels rule. Hungry for some real down home cooking? Throw on a little southern fried rock. Molly Hatchet. Pure Prairie League. Southern fried rock. Sizzling with Black Oak, Charlie Daniel, Daredevil, and the Allman Brothers. Plus Blackfoot and Marshall Tucker. Southern Fried Rock, the stars and bars of the New South from KTEL. Available at these and other fine There may be some dispute about who started rock and roll, but there's no dispute about where it came from. And it came from the southern United States. It's absolutely fashion. Yes. Yes, yeah. So what is Southern Rock? Southern Rock, we'll be discussing, is a specific time period and genre. For instance, a lot of the stuff from the South that is not Southern rock by description, for instance, R.E.M., it had a twang to it. Well, I know it might sound strange, but I believe you're coming back before too long. Don't go back to rock, country and it's different from like you know your California country rock stuff to me you'd have a little more shuffles and boogies to me a boogie is always played you know you've got more of your syncopation going on between your the bass drum and the snare drum with a shuffle you've got those eighth note kind of triplet patterns being emphasized on hi-hat okay and to me that's what you know the big difference is would you say that the shuffle a little more root in jazz whereas the boogie has more root in R&B? I would certainly think so. If we distill it, it swings. For a lot of it, it was a very natural feeling swing. Turn you down 
why do you think Southern Rock is so maligned? Well, I mean, we're going to go right there right now. I'm not ignorant of the fact that certain people look down on a Leonard Skinner or... The Allman Brothers escaped that, I think. I think the reason why is because they were so much at the forefront. They also didn't really do the rebel flag thing. All these people would always try to put stuff in a box. Nashville would do that stuff for the budget with all the country stuff from, you know, right. package and repackage, repackage, just natural that in the South, they would do that with rock and roll and uh, do that with a whole damn uh, genre. And when the Allman Brothers hit and were big, rock was just rock. There really wasn't genres of it. You either liked it or you didn't. There weren't all the subgenres. Which wasn't that much later, by the way. It was only a couple of years later. And then Leonard Skinner was packaged. The rebel flag idea, which at the time it... God, this is a difficult subject. The rebel flag at the time didn't have all this baggage that has, it has right now. And in fact, the guys in Leonard Skinner said that was the record company's ideas. And I guarantee you, none of the guys in the record company were from Jacksonville, Florida. They were from New York. You had to have a gimmick, a big picture item to catch people's attention. You had a bunch of scruffy looking dudes. They were very charismatic, but it wasn't like a Jim Morrison charisma. So what were you going to do? Well, they're all from the South, and they sing with that twang, and people will dig on it if, if we make something a big deal out of it. So we'll throw a rebel flag up there. That was their gimmick. <clears throat> Did you ever hear that story about what Rick Rubin wanted to do with the Black Crows? Yeah. Rick Rubin idea for the Black Crows was to call them the Cobb County Crows with all K's. Uh, no, he did not. Yes. yes, he did. When the band changed and it was a harder sound, we added black, black crows, because we were the crows. And Rick wanted us to be the Cobb County crows. Overalls, flannel shirts, hay in your teeth. You call yourselves the Cobb County crows, but spell them all with K's. KKK. I go, oh, that, are, that would be really good, Rick. You know, thanks. That's the, thanks for that. You f***ing asshole, you know. Rick Rubin declined behind the music's repeated request to comment on his involvement with the Black Crows. Before she 
level of musicianship. If you didn't have that, you were ostracized and you heard about it. There was no faking it till you make it in, in Southern Rock. Everybody could play. Now, were some people truly gifted, like a Dwayne Allman? Yeah. You couldn't bullshit your way through it. In other words, I never heard of a Southern Rock New York Dolls. Did not exist.
was a big part of Southern Rock. Mustaches. Yeah, you had to have some facial hair. You had to. That was a, that was a rule. It was a rule. I love those bands. When you see the band picture, it looks like they're in the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> they look like if it was black and white, it would be Civil War. And, and everybody at least looks 45. <laughs> at least. Everybody. But everyone's in their 20s. And everybody's you know, 23. And you're like, what? Part, that was part of the thing, the disconnect I had with Southern Rock, because I always thought they were so much older than they were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, it took us a while, but we're there now. You got, you got gold right now. <laughs> Met an old man on the street, a So it all comes from the Almond Brothers, ultimately, right? Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. Right? They were the Sputnik of all of it. If it wasn't for them, I don't think any of it would exist. First of all, very unique. Almost a boy at the time, Greg Almond, who sang like a sixty-five-year-old blues singer. His brother, not much older than him, a gifted session player uh, in Muscle Shoals. In the South, <laughs> yeah. playing on Wilson Pickett Records, playing on Aretha Franklin Records. He was the in-house rock guitar player when you couldn't... It was a big thing on the radio, but not everyone knew how to play rock guitar, right? Hey, Jim, don't make it bad. Was. You ever seen the picture of him with his Strat in the studio and his Stratocaster and he's got his uh, fuzz box duct tape to his guitar so he could hit it with his hand? You know, this is no. a long time ago. No kidding. You know? The two brothers are both massively talented and find other musicians just as talented as they were. I think Dickie Betts was real close to as good at times as Dwayne. And they formed this band that's based around improvisation. I, I don't know how, how any of it ever happened, but it did. Well, they were an hourglass first, and then I don't know how that turned into the Almond Brothers. And the hourglass, if you see old pictures of them, they look like the Beatles. To me, they look like 
the Guess Who or something. Something like that, but they have those bowl haircuts. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool to see. You know? But how did that evolve, do you know? Greg Allman had, well, first of all, he was an organ player, which was unusual. Um, in, the, in fact, that he was a good one, and he had that jazz swing sound. And Dwayne Allman was a very studious and uh, wide-ranging musician that loved jazz. I mean, they always talk about Miles Davis, and you can hear bits and pieces of that in their music very easily. That's what I heard, that they, they'd sat around just you know, listening and just really studying Miles Davis. Well, it's my understanding that with the transition came about the same time as the White Album and the band and all that stuff where everybody kind of got back to basics and they shed the psychedelic clothing and, okay. and all the structures and stuff. And so they kind of went back home, so to speak, whereas they really hadn't played up their roots before then. And so they were not pretending anymore. No. Now they were. they knew what they were doing. They just were kind of out there on a limb as far as being ahead of anybody doing that specifically. that they they gave to us gifts is that they gave us a a set of standards that if you lived here if you got together with musicians generally I would play with older musicians but for a while it was like having the jazz real book except it would stormy monday it would be statesboro blues whipping post whipping post and everybody knew these songs and you could expand on them also Who was the first to come up with the three guitar thing? 
Definitely Leonard Skinner. We're going to go from Almonds to Skinner. All Leonard Skinner was all Ronnie Van Zandt. What he said went, and uh, he actually picked the guitar players. They didn't like Ed King. Ed King was uh, from California. He wasn't one of them. Ronnie knew him. He, Ed King had played in the um, what? What is the psychedelic? Strawberry alarm clock. Strawberry alarm clock. Yeah, and they had met each other on a tour. <laughs> and Ronnie said, "If I ever need a guitar player, I'm gonna call you up." And sure enough, he did because he knew he was good as hell, and he was a picker. Gary Rosenton, he was playing his version of Eric Clapton playing his version of American Blues that it came back across the ocean. Right, right. Uh, Alan Collins had his own, really, his own thing going, um, but it was very British rock. It was, it, but he wasn't a picker picker. In the, like I say, like a Jerry Reed kind of sense, uh, clean, and that was what Ed King did. And that was the sound that uh, Ronnie Van Zandt wanted. Secondly, every single thing you hear in Leonard Skinner, which is, is it's fascinating, the almonds came from improvisation. Nothing in Leonard Skinner was improvised. Every single note you hear was arranged and worked out. That trips me and out. That how that stuff was like that. Every guitar solo. The guitar solo in Freebird was a range. That is an arrangement. That is not him just jamming. So, in the studio, Al Cooper, the producer, which there was never, I almost, how many different marriages of a producer and a band were that perfect? Gary Rosenton and uh, Alan Collins, and he said Alan Collins especially, was uncanny in his ability to double himself playing guitar. So they would he would play through the Freebird solo once, and it wasn't any more expensive in studio time or take that long for him to play through it a second time. You pile those two on top and you have this really thick sound. Well then, if you're going to recreate that live, you need three guitar players. Because one guy's got to hold down the rhythm while the other two guys play the same solo at the same time.
this is not a slam on because I love all the other bands we're going to talk about. But honestly, if you had the Almonds and you had Leonard Skinner, if nobody else existed, you'd still have Southern Rock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> those two guys, those two bands did so, they explored so much and they were so different. That was kind of a southern rock thing. Who else had triple guitar players? Molly Hatchett did. Dave Hulblet was Hulblet, one of them. Yeah. Based only on the, the, the album cover. 
There was nothing about who it. Who was that said, artist? Did you, did you know who, Frank, Frank Franzetta? Frank Franzetta, yeah. He uh, would do the stuff like in Heavy Metal Magazine back in the day. Sure. It was so how did they end up with him doing doing the cover art for that? Was that just a how fluke the hell did thing that too? happen? That all of a sudden that you... Okay, let, let's talk about The Hatchet. Um, First of all, the best story, before I forget about the album covers, is I, I read an interview with Banner, um, the bass player, um, and he was saying... <laughs> that when it came time to do flirting with disaster, you know they were hot on their first record, and it was like now we're a big, you know, it was like cheap trick Budokan, same kind of thing. Let's get something going now. So Franzetta, who's Spanish, he's in Spain. They call him up on a on a, a conference call, and they got him on the phone with his accent, and then they have Molly Hatchet, and then some record company guys, and he's he's beating them up on the price. He's like tripling his price from the first record, and and he starts saying things along the lines of, uh, "If it wasn't for my painting, your record wouldn't have sold." And and, and the banner said that we were told to keep quiet during this, and not and the the record company to handle it. And he said, "I couldn't, I couldn't just sit there and listen to that." And he said, "Mr. Franzetta, I like paintings, but I ain't never heard him play one on the radio." <laughs> <laughs> You gotta admit, that is just classic Southern logic there. I don't think Molly Hatchet lived up to the first two minutes of their version of Dreams, the Allman Brothers song. What a great cover. Just one more morning. I had to wake up with the blues. Pull myself out of bed. Joe Brown. Yeah, Danny Joe Brown. I thought he had a really, really unique voice. 
and the band was good, but the that is, is something special goes on there. Well, I, I created I've already created the mashup of the two versions because I knew that that had to be discussed. Because you're exactly right, that is just a really nice version. And one is in six, the almonds is in six, and then and then Molly Hatchet had the idea to. To make it in four, which is a very odd thing to do with a lick that had nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. That was always something I wish we could have done because so many people had hits that way, is to rearrange a song. But I could never do it. It was the hardest thing in the world for me. Well, because this stuff was burned in your brain. I couldn't get past the original thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It, I would end up playing the original thing again, you know? Yeah. But they did a phenomenal rearrangement of that, and you're a big fan of flirting with disaster. The record. Well, I'm I'm actually a bigger fan of beating the odds. The third record. The third record, because you know Danny Joe Brown got real sick. He's had health issues apparently back in the day. He had a he was a, a very severe diabetic. Right. Mm. So they get this guy named Jimmy Farrar, and Jimmy Farrar was a big dude. Like, yes, he was a big dude. He was. He did not look like a rock and roll singer. He <laughs> he was a big fella. Well, he looked like maybe if canned heat. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, a, a, a mouth. I mean, it wasn't unprecedented. But it was unprecedented in uh, MTV era. But okay. well, and luckily this was just before that. I mean, it was just before that. Beating the odds. The song is obviously somebody trying to rewrite "Flirting with Disaster," but it's the other songs on there. To me, just it sounds like cocaine boogie. You know, that's just what that is to me. That's, well, I'm sure that's it was. cocaine boogie. You know, a little bit, a little, little too, too sped up, a little too sped up. It's pretty know. fast. It, it is way right. fast. The, I don't, I don't, I don't know the drummer's name on that stuff, but man, he was, he had chops, had great chops. I don't know who it was. The album that came after beating the odds was a live album. Is that the one where they actually did Freebird? They actually do Freebird on the live. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because there was that gap that was missing. There was no Skinner at all at that time. 
But Freebird wasn't Gap. I mean, it was there still. But this is part of the reason why people made the joke about holding up a lighter and yelling Freebird. Is because it got to be that much of a cliche that even these bands, because they weren't the only band who did that, but they would close their set as their little homage. This is our music. We grew up here. We knew some of these guys. And it's in our DNA because we heard it every day on the radio or would go to Wolfstock or whatever, you know, at the, you know those outdoor festivals and whatnot. One night at the, there used to be this thing called the uh, Berkeley Jam downtown, with the Berkeley Cafe. If you, you ever go to it, it I mean, local yeah. musicians would go down there and improvise and play. It was usually blues, of course, and, and stuff like that. But occasionally, at the end of the night, it would start to rock a little bit. You know, people would get a little more, you know, a little looser. And uh, I remember one night going down there, and uh, my buddy Audley's phenomenal guitar player and. A Leonard Skinner has a doctorate in Leonard Skinner, and uh, Chip Robinson, who was in the Backsliders, uh, Scott Miller, and then uh, I can't remember who else was involved. Steve Howell, and uh, they were jamming on some blues and stuff. And some asshole in the crowd actually whipped out the Freebird, and I saw Audley look at that motorbike and just gave him a look. And there was not that many people there this night. It was it was fairly sparsely. They went into a huddle, and they came out of that huddle, and they played Freebird, the entire freaking thing, on the spot, and Audley played the guitar solo, note for note, just to shut that son of a bitch up. It was the greatest thing I ever saw. No kidding. And it just happened out of nowhere. That's awesome. It's like, oh, you want Freebird? They played it, and they sang, and it was really good, too, you know? That, that's what I, No uh, kidding. <laughs> probably that's not going to happen in a New York club. No, hell no. <laughs> I guess out, up there they shout, Sweet Jane. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet Jane. The, the difference is, Sweet I can play Jane. Sweet Jane. <laughs> This is where it goes to your point of all the other bands were singles bands. 
Yes. Yeah, there was a lot yeah. of quality. They were really good singers. You know, you can, really listen, good singers. you can listen to those whole records of Almond Brothers and Skinner. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, 38 Special, you're going to get your single here and there, song here and there. It's not a solid album in the same way. Different, very different time, too. Right. and tell me that they're not perfect. Well, that's what honestly changed me because frankly, I grew up just not having too much appreciation for it until I got a little closer to the 80s. And, and it wasn't until the Skinner airplane crash that I sat and listened to the first record. All I knew before was a single here and there. And my friend had that album and then after the plane crash, I like listened to that album and my idea was Sweet Home Alabama. And I thought they were picking a fight with Neil Young and I had to take Neil's side. You know, I, I know the story, but it wasn't until I listened to that record and the production on it is great. It's astounding. Yeah, it is. It, it is. Al Cooper is a Jewish guy from New York. These guys are from Jacksonville, Florida. Somehow together, they come together and create that. He, I mean, it's one of my favorite producer. They were never the same when he was out of the picture. And it's not like it was trickery or anything of that nature. He just knew how to make them sound like those two records. It's pretty incredible, really.
Skinner, the dream ended violently in a Mississippi pine forest on October 20th, 1977. Among the six people dead, lead singer and songwriter Ronnie Van Zant. It seemed clear that Skinner was finished. This has been produced by Donnie Shattuck. End of part one. To be continued in the next episode. Stay tuned. I fought proudly for my country When the times were bad Now they say I'm guilty When they find me I must die Only me and Jesus know That I never stole a dime Well, when Vietnam was over there was no work here for me I had a pretty wife awaiting And two kids I had to feed Well, I'm one of America's heroes And when they shoot me down Won't you fly, oh glory, proudly Put my medals in the ground I'm coming home to see you, Jesus Well, it feels so close this time Please take mercy on a soldier From the Florida Georgia line When they find me, they must kill me Oh, Jesus, save my soul I can't go back down to Rafer I can't take that anymore